We're in the middle of a series that I began uh, a short time ago on the subject of investment and return. Investment and return. And if you've missed either of the previous two talks, I would recommend if you wanted to either watch the videos online or you can access them by a podcast because what we're saying in these next few is building on the foundation that we've laid in the previous two talks. In this series, uh, we're commenting really on, you know, God wants us to know the kind of life that he built us for, a kind of a fruitful life, a life which is abundant, where we're thriving, where we're blessed, where we're living life as God intended us to live it. And in this series, we're exploring ways in which we can invest to gain that kind of life. For that to be the return, what do we need to do? And so we've been looking at this uh, biblical principle of investment and return. The Bible often refers to it as sowing and reaping. And last time we looked at our fruitfulness coming from being connected to Jesus, as we looked at our relationship with Jesus, as we're obedient to his will, we find there's a return. Our prayers seem to be being answered and our lives are making an impact way beyond anything we could do in our own strength. So today we're gonna to look at another way that we can invest, which brings about a return which I would say we would all want to experience. The Bible gives us pictures that help us understand what a thriving life can be like. And I want to look at just one word picture today. It's in the third verse of the first chapter in the book of Psalms. And it gives us a glimpse, describes people who live a fruitful and prosperous life. So we'll begin with that description, and then I'll begin to unpack later on what we need to invest in order to reap that. But let's read it together. This is Psalm chapter 1 and verse 3. If you don't have a Bible, you'll be able to see on the screens uh, the text as I read them. If you do have a Bible, you'll actually be able to read ahead and figure out what you need to invest and get to, the, to get this return. But if you didn't bring a Bible with you, tough. You'd have to wait. <laughs> they, these people, they are like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf doesn't wither. Whatever they do, prospers. That sounds good to me. I'd like that to describe my life. The power of this word picture actually pales for us in comparison to the power of the picture as the first people heard it, because he's writing there, he's writing in Israel to the people of Israel. Now we, of course, live in England, where it's a very green and pleasant land, in fact, so green and pleasant, sometimes as I've flown in, having been in the Middle East or somewhere very arid, it's just stunning to see just how green England can be. A land where it rains more often than we wish it would. This is a picture of the countryside outside of Jerusalem, the Judean desert. I've driven through it, it's a never-ending, desolate dryness, and it brings a whole new understanding and appreciation of what it meant for Jesus to go off into the wilderness for 40 days. That's where he went, into the Judean wilderness. And much of the land of Israel can be described as a dry and sun-scorched land, a land where palm trees grow and vines and olive trees grow, but only where there's water or where they're watered deliberately. But in some parts, as far as the eye can see, it is simply desert. And into that context, the writer describes the life of the prosperous this way. They are like a tree planted by streams of water, 
which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. And you see in this picture the stark contrast between the land in general and the land on the edges of the river. And that would have immediately registered with the uh, hearers. So the Psalm's telling us that prosperous people are like a tree planted by a stream. It's healthy, it grows, it matures, it's secure, it's firmly planted, it's always resourced. It yields its fruit in season. Not every tree in Israel did yield its fruit in season. If it was a very dry season, the olives would fall off or they would just be really dry and stunted. And whose leaf doesn't wither. In Israel's hot sun, where water was scarce, a tree's leaves would wilt and dry out and actually stop being able to fully function. And leaves are magical things, as I'll mention in just a couple of seconds. Apart from the water which plumps up the plant's cells and carries nutrients from the soil, a plant's main need for water is to make energy. It creates energy from water and other stuff. And the leaves are essential for that to happen. Now, when I was at school, I, I, didn't, do, I didn't fit into academic study. I was bored most of the time by that stuff. But I do remember some things. I loved biology, especially dissecting rats and stuff like that, practical things. Um, but one thing I remember photographically from my biology days was the formula for photosynthesis. A plant which has leaves can photosynthesize, can change photo light into energy, and it does it like this. It takes carbon dioxide and water, and the light of the sun shines, and the plant turns those ingredients into sugar and oxygen. So I remember this little formula from all those years ago. Six CO2, six carbon dioxide molecules, plus six H2O, six water molecules, converts to C6H12O6, which is glucose, and it also releases 6O2, which is oxygen. In the Middle East, where this psalm was written, there was no shortage of sunlight, there was no shortage of carbon dioxide, but there was a significant shortage of water. A tree is energized by water. It needs it to create glucose. That's what gives it, gives it its energy. And with water, it grows strong, and fruitful, and without it, it withers. Like such a well-watered tree, a person who does what we're about to look at is enabled to live life uh, abundantly blessed, abundantly resourced, and like the tree, they are healthy, they are energized, they are growing, they're maturing, secure, firmly planted, and always resourced. And they find that they can stand firm in adversity. When life heats up, and they would otherwise be overpowered, they stay strong. When the wind blows, they don't topple because their roots are strong. Whatever they do prospers, this text says here. Whatever they do prospers. Well, prosperity, uh, Wikipedia tells us that prosperity is a state of flourishing, thriving, success, or good fortune. Prosperity often encompasses wealth, but it also includes other factors which are independent of wealth to varying degrees, such as happiness and health. So the psalmist is saying that these people are flourishing, thriving, successful, happy, and healthy. Which of us doesn't want a life like that? So if that is the return, then what do we need to invest to get it? So let's read back to our passage, Psalm 1, the 
preceding verses to verse 3. Blessed are those who do not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but who delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on his law day and night. They are like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf doesn't wither. Whatever they do prospers. So people who are said in verse 1 there to be blessed and whose lives are described in verse 3, as we just unpacked, they don't do the things described in verse 1, and they do do the things described in verse 2. That's the investment. Do the things described in verse 2 that we're going to unpack today. Delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on his law day and night. Delight in God's word. Not just read it because we're supposed to read it, we're supposed to, but engage with it, allowing it to feed our souls. The Queen's coronation in 1953 was one of the most opulent occasions ever in the history of our country, and the Queen arrived to the coronation in the gilded 18th century gold state coach. She was adorned with an incredible outfit and covered in diamonds. And during that ceremony, the Queen was presented with a large ornate Bible with the words, this is the most precious book the world affords. It is. It's beyond comparison to anything else. Delight in the word of God. Now, with so much competing for our delight, the psalmist is saying, make God's word your delight. I love the message translation of verse 2. You thrill to God's word. You chew on scripture day and night. Chew on it. Chew on the scriptures. In the Old Testament, uh, Joshua was 80 years old when Moses, who led the people of Israel out of Egypt, handed over the leadership of the people of Israel to him. And Joshua had no doubt read many times all the scrolls that they carried with him, the, the first five books of the Bible. And he would have known, you know, with great familiarity, the content of those books, those scrolls. But this is what Moses says to him in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. There's the same investment and return stated again, that principle stated again. Do this and you'll be prosperous and successful. You will flourish. I love the way the 19th century preacher Spurgeon comments on the person who does this. He delights to meditate on it, to read it by day, and to think upon it by night. He takes the text and carries it with him all day long. And in the night watches, when sleep forsakes his eyelids, he museth upon the word of God. I love that word. It's been out of fashion for a hundred years. But he museth upon the word of God. It's not about, just about reading the word of God. It's about chewing on it so that we understand it and allow it to change our behavior. And revisiting on it, uh, revisiting it and musing on it allows it to form us. Meditate it, it says here in verse eight, day and night so that you might be careful to do everything in it. My experience uh, and that of probably most of you is that the more immersed my life is in the Bible, the more I'm reading it and engaging with what it says, the more it affects the way I live. I'm more careful to do what God wants me to do. I'm more careful to avoid doing those things God does not want me to do. 
If you don't read your Bible for a while, if you don't think about what you may have once read, you may find all too easily you're affected by the world around you, you're affected by the world's standards, and you're far less likely to be careful to do everything that's written in God's Word. There's a psalm in the Bible, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. It gives us a lot of pictures and concepts about what the Bible's like. It's the longest by, um, psalm in the Bible by a long way. My computer's word count says it's over 3,000 words long with 176 verses. And every one of those verses contains a reference to God's word or to the Bible. And he uses their words like word, your word, your laws, precepts, promises, statutes, commands, and decrees. And let me just pick out a few of those verses and a couple of principles before we move on to some more practical application of how to really get into God's word. David writes this in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Verse 15, I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. Now, this psalm contains enough material for a whole series, but I'm just going to pick out a few of the benefits of knowing your Bible. First of all, knowing God's Word helps us to know God. As we consider His ways, we get to know Him. We get to understand how He responds in you know, a given situation. The, the Scriptures reveal His nature, His everlasting kindness, His jealousy for our devotion, His compassion, His sternness, His patience. It tells us what a follower of God is supposed to do. When John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, became a Christian many years ago, he was having a conversation with someone about, you know, how do I get to know God better? And this other person said, well, what about the, getting into the Bible? And they see, he said, what's the Bible? He'd come from a totally non-Christian background. Nobody in his family had ever been to church, as far as he was aware. And he, uh, he didn't even know there was such a book, the Bible. And they said, no, no, it's God's book, the Bible. And he's like, what? he's got a book out. Where can, I get, where can I get a copy of his book? And they said, well, I think every book stops. Sell, book uh, short store, that was the way they would have said it, a bookshop, sells it, I think. So he rushed off. It was quite late at night, and he found a place that was open, and he bought his first Bible. If you want to get to know someone, and they happen to be an author, a great way would be to buy their book. And the Bible is God-breathed. He is the author speaking through its authors, and it's written about him. And in the Bible, really, God downloads information about himself. He gives us pictures of what he's like. He gives us messages which sometimes speaks directly to us through the words in the Scriptures. So it helps us to know God. Also, knowing God's Word increases our wisdom. Verse 98 of Psalm 119 says, "'Your commands are always with me "'and make me wiser than my enemies. "'I have more insight than all my teachers.'" for I meditate on your statutes. Wisdom is a lot more than understanding truth. It's allowing that truth to change us and living it out in obedience. Uh, he says there, sorry, I just skipped ahead of myself. Knowing the scriptures increases our wisdom hugely. He goes on, I have more understanding than the elders for I obey your precepts. So wisdom is a lot more than just understanding truth. It's allowing that truth to change us as we obey it, as we live it out. It's as James in his New Testament letter says in John, James 1, 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. 
Those who look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, this is the scriptures, the Bible, and continue in it, not forgetting, forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in all they do. It increases our wisdom as we live out what we read. Knowing God's word, thirdly, sustains us when life hurts. Verse 28, my soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. I came across a story about a Vietnamese guy who had been a translator back in the 60s and early 70s for some preachers, American preachers who were in Vietnam. Uh, after the Vietnam War, when the communists took over, the Americans withdrew. Uh, his name is Hen Pam, and he was arrested on suspicion of having aided the Americans. He was thrown into prison. It was a communist concentration camp. And every day, pretty much, he was beaten and he was brainwashed with communist propaganda. They only gave him communist stuff to read or to, they were you know, shouting at him and everything else, and tried to brainwash him. And every day he was just asking God to help him, and one day he just reached the end of himself, and he's just like, God, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe you don't exist. You know, I'm going through this hell, and the, you know, maybe, so I'm just gonna stop talking to you from here on out. The next morning, he woke up, and he find, found that he'd been assigned the dreaded chore of cleaning the latrines, the, these tin buckets of excrement and all that. So he's, he's gone to do that in the prison toilets. And as he's doing it, he notices amongst all this kind of paper that's been used as toilet paper, English words. And so he grabs this piece of paper, he washes it, tucks it away, and then later that night he pulled it out when everyone had gone to bed so he could read what was on it. And this is what was on the piece of paper. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what it said on the paper. Hein breaks down, he's just weeping. He knew his Bible well enough because he translated it, uh, talks for these preachers. And he knew of, of all the passages in the Bible, there probably wasn't a more relevant one for a person who was about to give up, uh, just on the edge of giving up their faith. Evidently, God had other plans for him. And uh, what these prisons, prison guards were using for toilet paper, pages of the Bible, could not be more treasured to him right at that moment when he needed it. Scripture sustains us when life hurts. And then also knowing God work, God's word breaks things which bind us. Verse 45, I will walk, walk about in freedom for I have sought out your precepts. I run in the path of your commands for you have set my heart free. There was a guy called Patrick who was sentenced to prison for life some years ago and for 15 years while he was in prison he says he didn't sleep a single night. Every night, it was like darkness gathered around him. He was tormented. He was troubled by the things that he had seen, the things that he had done. And every night, he would just lie there, his bed soaked with sweat, gripped by anxiety and neurosis. And then he came across a Bible. And he had learned to read while he was in prison, and so he started to read the Bible. And as he read, he just thought, you know, I don't even understand this. It makes no sense at all to me. But he was intrigued by it, and he said, it felt like there was someone on the other side communicating to me through it. And so he carried on reading, and he said to God, okay, I'll give you a week to prove yourself. 
20 minutes later, he fell asleep. Couldn't believe it when he woke up the next day. His torment had completely broken. And through him continuing to read the Bible, God began to speak to him. Eventually, he discovered uh, a relationship with God. The power has, sorry, the Bible has the power to break things which bind us. So I've just picked up on a few little verses amongst the many, those 176 verses. I'd encourage you to read Psalm 119 and just to prayerfully chew on and muse on some of those verses. Like water feeding a tree then, the Word of God feeds us. We need more than physical food and drink to keep us healthy. And just as a tree is dependent on an abundant supply of water, so our flourishing life is dependent on an abundant supply of the Word of God. So coming back to this investment and return principle, there's a direct link between the Scripture and God's blessing. If we want the return of being blessed and prosperous and flourishing and fruitful, the Bible tells us we need to engage deeply with God's Word, the Bible. And yet, in our fast-paced society, there's just so much which competes for our time. Other books are immediately more interesting. Other magazines, more entertaining. Things that we can watch on the television require a lot less effort, and they seem to satisfy at least in the moment. But those things don't satisfy long-term in the way the Word of God does. I love this quote from the 15th century, Thomas Akempis. He said this, I have no rest but in a nook with the book. He wasn't looking to be entertained by all the other things that he could have, and back in those days, 15th century, there wasn't so much on the internet and television and available by magazine. But nevertheless, that was his replenishment. Just give me that book, the Bible, give me a nook that I can get away and read it, and that is where I find my rest and replenishment. Now, some of you have been reading the Bible, you've been studying the Bible for decades, but many of you may not have yet found a way that works for you. And even as I'm talking about this today, you're painfully aware you're just not good at it. So much so that you might have even given up trying, hoping that the occasional input that you get from things like sermons will be sufficient for you to be fed. So how can we grow in this? How can we get better at it? How can we see the Bible more of an adventure, more of something which is replenishing, does feed us and does build us up? Well, there's a principle and that is this, it seems that those who get the most out of God's Word are those who put the most in, the most effort in. The more we read it, the more we find we want to read it. Now, that doesn't mean it will always feel rewarding. Some parts of the Bible are pretty heavy going. Um, I referred to this book before, Secrets of the Secret Place, Bob Sorge, who has a great relationship with God, loves the Scriptures, but he, he uh, talks in here, one of his chapters is The Secret of Boredom. And he says, everybody gets bored in their personal prayer life and Bible reading. Some days I'm so looking forward to my time with the Lord only to sleep right through the entire time. Other times I seem to be awake enough, it's just that there's no wind of the Spirit blowing on this particular day for me. No matter what I read or how fervently I pray, this one seems destined to be a dud. Put it bluntly, Sometimes prayer is boring and Bible reading is like eating sawdust. So what should you do? What should we do when we get bored? Do it anyway. Persevere. Do the time. If you stay with it, eventually the breakthrough will come. There may be a lot of boring hours between here and there, but don't quit. 
I'd encourage you to read that if that sounds relevant to you. So let me share with you now as we move into a practical application what I find helpful for me in my own reading and study of the Bible. And as I do, I'd encourage you, if I say anything at all that's any use to any of you, clock it or write it down or think, oh, I could get that app or I could get that book or I could do that, I'd encourage you to apply this even as I'm talking. So as I mentioned last time, when I get to my study, normal, normally my habit would be to go and sit in my leather armchair spend some time with the Lord, I've got a cup of coffee maybe. It may be just for the duration of that cup of coffee, or it may be a couple of hours. It all depends on what's going on in my life or my schedule and what happens in the course of my quiet time with the Lord. Over the years, I've varied how I've read the Bible. For some seasons, I've had the discipline of reading a psalm each day and a chapter of the book of Proverbs. 31 chapters is roughly, you know, one a day, it'll take you a month, and you can, Book of Proverbs is full of wisdom. If you want to grow in wisdom, just read that book a few times, and you'll learn a lot of lessons about how to relate and how to lead and everything else. But uh, yeah, so a chapter of the Book of Proverbs and a psalm. It takes five months if you do it every day to go through the psalms. Um, I've sometimes read the Gospels and just stayed with the Gospels and just read through them and then read through them again, maybe a chapter at a time. Sometimes I'll read a whole book at a time, a whole biblical book, or maybe I'll read 10 or 15 chapters of a longer book, um, progressing through the Bible maybe during the course of a year. This Bible I've read a number of times from cover to cover, and I've done it sometimes in that manner. Um, I'll have a pen handy. So this, this book, this is very precious to me because not only is it, <laughs> well, so today's NIV, and it's one of the only soft-bound leather today's NIVs in the world because I had it bound by a professional bookbinder, but also it is full. Most pages have got notes by me, underlinings, things that the Lord has spoken to me or highlighted. Uh, When other people preach, I jot notes in. It just becomes very rich, and over the next decade, this will become even more valuable to me. I did a couple of quick sums. Uh, Found that if you read an average of three and a quarter chapters a day, you can read the entire Bible in a whole year. Three and a quarter chapters a day. If that sounds a bit of a lot for you, it happens to work out that if you read one chapter a day, five days a week, you can read the whole New Testament in a year. If you've never done that, I really would recommend five days a week, perhaps for a year, read the whole New Testament. Sometimes I'll stay with a paragraph or stay with a verse and delve deeper into what it means. I might grab a load of commentaries off my shelf and read what others with greater biblical um, knowledge than me believe this text means, because some of it's tough, isn't it? It's like, what? Why did Jesus say that? It's like a hard thing to say. Yeah, it's a hard thing. So we don't understand the original Aramaic, let alone the original Greek into which it was translated. We need to understand, what did he mean by that? That was hyperbole, all right. And it's helpful to have other people's insights. So if you have a Bible that's got a commentary in the bottom section, that's quite helpful, because that uh, will answer some of your immediate questions. Sometimes a phrase will strike me And I'll roll it around for a while and prayerfully consider what it means for me personally because I believe this book to be alive. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says this, The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This is not just a book we're reading. This is alive. There should be a public health warning on the cover here. Warning, this is alive. This could change your life permanently if you actually open these pages. As we read, God's word is living and active. His spirit is living and active. He's interacting with us and with his word. And he's doing his work. 
So we're not just reading for information, we're reading for transformation. Sometimes as we read, something will stand out to us as though with a highlighter, and it's like, no way, that wasn't there before. I've read that a dozen times over the course of the decades. I never saw that in there before. That's probably because the Lord is highlighting that to you at that point. And so if that happens, I'd endeavor not to rush on from it, but just stop there and just engage with that. And those discoveries of these highlighted words, they may be exciting or they may be painful. I mean, they may actually be the Lord convicting. You know, this double-edged sword hurts when it jabs you. And Stay with it and let yourself be jabbed because this is your loving Heavenly Father bringing conviction or whatever. I found, um, now that we're in the computer age and smartphones and all that, I found that the YouVersion Bible app is helpful in always having a Bible handy wherever I am. This is the picture uh, of it. And tens of millions of people are using this app. It's available in over 700 languages. And so I've, I've got it, and you can, wherever you are, you can use it. If you're in Wi-Fi, you can go to loads of translations. Um, I've downloaded today's NIV and the message translation on it. So wherever I am, sitting by a lake, whatever, I can just look up and read the Bible in more than one translation. And sometimes I'll read a passage that I'm studying in those two translations because Eugene Peterson brings a fresh light to something which I might have become used to in terms of the today's NIV wording. I sometimes listen to the Bible. In fact, I sometimes do them both at once. And with the Bible app, I can do that. So I'm reading a chapter. I can go to that chapter and I can press the, the sound thing and some kind person will read me the chapter as I read the chapter. So I'm taking it in through my eyes as well as through my ears, which doubles the effectiveness of my ingesting what is actually being said there. Uh, I, in the past, I used to have the Bible on cassette tape. When I was a decorator up ladders, I listened to the Bible through that. Then we moved on to CD. You might have a CD player in your car. You might have a phone that actually, through Bluetooth, connects with your speakers. However you can do it, audio, when you drive, you can listen to radio, whatever, and gain a bit. Or you can listen to the Bible. And over a period of time, you would be shocked how much of the Bible you would actually be able to take in if you did it uh, that way. Nicky Gumbel from HTB has a, he's created a brilliant tool which I've used, I've really benefited from, and that is the Bible in one year. This is a, an app, you can get it on your phone, on your tablet, or your computer, I think. And um, it's 365 daily studies, you read the whole Bible through the year, and also Nicky Gumbel gives you a commentary and things that draw out stuff from the passage. And um, I'd, I'd started on January 1st and I finished on December 31st and I did all 365, yes. Now, that was a problem. It was a problem to me because I wasn't that disciplined to do it every day and so sometimes I was five, six, seven, eight days behind so I'd sit down for like two hours and catch up because I, I wanted to achieve this goal of finishing it by the end and it just wasn't helpful to me. I'm too, whatever, competitive, driven, accomplishment, achieving, so I thought, anyway, I started the following year, but I, I changed into something else. But it was absolutely excellent, and I would recommend that to new believers and mature believers alike. Nicky Gumbel's insights are great. Wayne Cordero wrote an excellent book called The Divine Mentor, which I highly recommend. I like, I recommend everything that Wayne Cordero writes, actually. He's a pastor in Hawaii, that area. He talks about learning from the characters in the scriptures who did things well and did things not so well, whose lives are described in the Bible. And he created a thing called the Life Journal. This is a fancy cover, but basically the Life Journal. 
And he said, basically, the Word of God, you wanna, we want to be cleansed by the Word of God. And so he came up with this little, whatever it is, S-O-A-P, soap. So each day you read a chunk of the Bible. In fact, this is the Old Testament and twice through the New Testament in a year. But he says, just pick out one verse that you feel the Lord's highlighting to you and then just use this S-O-A-P. So just write down the scripture, write down some observations about that, write down an application to your own life and then write down a prayer. And you can do that on one page. Sometimes it runs to two or three pages. And I found that really, really helpful. And the other thing is, you can look back over that, and you've got like all these, you know, these are moments where the Lord really spoke into your experience, and um, you can go back and relive them, which is fascinating. Again, you don't have to do all that. You, if you miss them, you don't do it for a week. Just engage with that day's study, and each one is, uh, stands alone, is helpful on its own. Um, as I mentioned last time, I'm partway through a nine-month journey, as is Debbie, following the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, a 16th century monk. And we're working through this book, Journey with Jesus, with its author, uh, Larry, our spiritual director. We meet up with him on Skype every three weeks. And most days, the, uh, he encourages us to look at a text somewhere from the Bible, which takes us deeper into reading it than if we just kind of skimmed along through it. And, you know, there are exercises in there like imagining you're a character in the story. Here's an angel. This was mine yesterday, I think. An angel appears to Mary and says, you're going to be pregnant without being married. You're Mary. How do you feel? And so I wrote a few pages on, wow. I mean, I, I ought to probably hurry up, but I'm expanding beyond my notes. But it's like, wow, I'm a teenager. I'm pregnant. I'm betrothed. In my culture, they could stone me to death. Who can I tell? I wish... My mum and dad or Joseph had been around while this angel turned up, but he'd never said anything about that. Here I am. And you kind of engage with the story at a whole new level. Uh, there's a thing called Lectio Divina, which presumably is Latin for something, but it's basically taking a phrase and meditating and chewing and musing on that phrase which stands out to you. And all the time journaling uh, each day, I found very helpful through this, what you're experiencing. So some days I'll write a few lines, some day, days I'll write a number of pages. And in here, this is my third since we began this little thing, some pictures you'll recognize from last week's, the last time I spoke, uh, that little squirrel tail in the bush that'll be in here. So pictures of things uh, which speak to me or, or strike me. There's another picture, a horrible picture. This is a child washed up on a Turkish beach, just thinking about what a mess we've made of the world. These things, it's, it's a it's a journey, and each um, few days it encourages you to read back over the last few days. But each month it says, read back the last 35 days. And as you read it, for me, it deepens what I've already experienced, and it, it actually tells me, you really are experiencing something. Because we can so quickly move day to day and move on and forget to treasure the things the Lord might have spoken to us. So hopefully that gives you a glimpse anyway into my own experience. Some of that might be an encouragement to you. Uh, as with prayer, I know different people resonate with different things, and some of that would be like, not interested in doing that, but something different. Um, and so here are some other things, practical things that colleagues that I asked have shared with me about what works for them. One colleague said that as they read a passage in the morning, they jot a bit of that down on a post-it note, they stick it in their car, they take it then into work, they stick it at their desk, and every time it catches their eye, it reminds them of what they've read that morning. 
Others like to use uh, daily study notes, Bible study notes, which give you a short passage, and then they ask questions of it, which lead you into praying about what you've read. Another colleague said that they used to have a date night with God, and um, once a week they prepare in advance for it. They'd lower the lighting, get some candles, some commentaries, get some books, get their Bible, a pen, notepad, and pray for, you know, and spend time with God through the whole evening. Someone else would take retreat days, somewhere quiet, away from home, just them, their Bible, their journal, worship music, and so on. And uh, someone found books which explain the Bible, explain the Bible structure, and its themes really helpful as they grasped more clearly the overall story of the people of God as it's written uh, and now. One met with a friend each morning and they tried to learn, I think it was a verse each time they met, and they learned a couple of chapters over a period of time. A number of our leaders have been doing something called the Community Bible Experience, where with a group of three or four others, they're reading through the New Testament in eight weeks. They meet once a week, they talk about what's struck them, what's challenged them and encouraged them, and it's a brilliant way to get into the Bible alongside others if that would be more helpful than doing so alone. There's a very quick video I just want to show you about that. Your heart, it's roughly 18 inches from your brain. Not very far, right? So why is it so hard to not just read the Bible, but to really absorb it deep down where it counts? Why do we have trouble getting it in a way that transforms our life? There are probably a lot of reasons, but here's a good one. Back around 200 BC, a Greek translation of the Bible split whole books into smaller sections so each could fit on a single scroll. The order of the books changed over time, sometimes simply from longest to shortest. In the 13th century, the books were divided into chapters, and in the 1500s, Bible verse numbers were added. To make it easier to fit on pages, the text was split into two columns. Notes and commentary were added over time, section headings too, and red letters gained popularity along the way. So what does it all add up to? Our modern Bible, weighed down by a lot of well-intentioned accessories. But does it feel more like a reference book than a love letter? Does it read more like Bible nuggets than the story of God? So we asked, what if we could turn back the pages of time to set the Bible free from history's many editions? Would God's word flow more freely from head to heart? We started by putting the books in a better historical order. Books that had been split, we put back together. We took away the chapter breaks, the verse numbering, the notes, the commentaries, even the red letters. We put it all back into one column, like the original, and we named it the Books of the Bible. A Bible so innovative, it was there from the start. Then we kept thinking. People usually read the Bible alone, in isolation. But what if we could go deeper together, experiencing God's Word in community? So we designed an eight-week reading plan, and we're inviting you to meet once a week in community to talk about your questions and discoveries. In just eight weeks, you will have read the entire New Testament like you've never seen before. We call this eight-week plan the Community Bible Experience. All the better to move God's truth from your brain to where it really counts. The Books of the Bible and the Community Bible Experience. Coming soon.
you'd like to find out more about that, if you want to join a group, if you want to start a group of your own, you can sign up at trentv.org slash Bible. So there's the link if you want to follow that. You can inquire about, is there a group near you or whatever. And you'll hear more about this in the coming weeks. 27 years ago, I met a man called R.T. Kendall. He used to be the uh, minister at Westminster Chapel uh, in London when he came to speak to us students at London Bible College. And I was immediately very struck by his Bible, which it, every page was discolored, a kind of yellowy-brown uh, edging around all the, every single page, as far as I could see, where evidently he had turned the pages of that book many thousands of times. And we asked him uh, about his devotional life, and we had to press him, and he was very bashful. He didn't really want to open up about it. But we said, no, what do you actually do, and how do you study your Bible, and how do you pray? We eventually got him to tell us that he usually got up around 4.30 and spent a few hours with the Lord before his family got up for breakfast. A man, I think, worth listening to on this subject. And he wrote a book called Did You Think to Pray? And in here, this is what he says as we come in towards landing. When we care to know God well enough to read his word, line by line, day by day, out of love for him, it pleases him more than nearly anything we do. This is how we know his ways. The funny thing is that the more we seek to know him through his revealed will, the better we often know his secret will. For example, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I take this job? Marry this person? Because the more you're acquainted with his ways by reading his word, the more you anticipate exactly what he would tell you as by a prophetic word. Let me give you, he says, what I regard as one of the best reasons to read the Bible. Jesus promised that when the Holy Spirit came, he would remind us of what we had been taught. John 14, 26 mentions the counselor. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Perhaps reading the Bible is not always inspirational. He says, there are times in season when the Bible comes alive. And there are times out of season when it seems boring. This is why Paul said to be prepared in season and out of season, 2 Timothy 4. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will suddenly remind you of what you have read. You felt nothing at the time, but later on the Holy Spirit comes alongside and reminds you of what you thought you had forgotten. So why should you read the Bible? So there will be something in your head for the Spirit to remind you of. And so I'm saying that reading our Bible is sometimes a great experience, but it's sometimes not. It's not immediately inspiring. It's a bit like eating your greens sometimes, but it leads, like eating your greens, to health, leads to spiritual vitality, to wisdom, and thriving and flourishing like a tree planted by a stream. And my encouragement to those of you who do read your Bible a lot, keep going. My encouragement to those of you who own a Bible, but you realize you've not seen it for a while, it's probably covered in dust somewhere, take it, find it, blow the dust off it, and invest in knowing God's Word. And you will notice over time, you will notice the returns. If you don't have a Bible, do all you can to get one. My favorite translation, as I mentioned, today's NIV, but any modern translation is probably just as good. We have some on the bookstall of various translations, but you can get one 
Uh, I just checked this week from a well-known website named after a river and a rainforest. And if you are happy with a used one, if you typed in today's NIV, TNIV, Bible, they're on there from as little as a penny and less than three pounds postage. So I really would encourage you, get a Bible if you haven't got one. If you have, find it, pick it up, and engage with it.